and welcome to the Dyson House podcast by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I am Tom Ackhurst and I'm your host. Today we're going to turn our attention to Turkey. It's a country that straddles an extremely important geopolitical crossroad, forming a boundary between the cultural, economic and political worlds of Europe and the Middle East. At the turn of this century, it seemed as though Turkey was going to be a gold standard for democracy in the region. However, today, Turkey has become the world's biggest jailer of journalists and has a new presidential system that has been slowly consolidated to centralise power firmly in President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's hands. Well, Erdogan's ruling Justice and Development Party was first elected back in 2002, and it was ironically on a commitment to democratisation and the EU membership process. However, Erdogan's about-face on issues such as religious pluralism has been remarkable. Having initially championed the religious freedoms to be won in EU membership, the president now plays a strong identitarian politics, which seeks to pit Turkey's conservative, pious and rural elements against its urban cosmopolitan centres. It had until this year been a successful strategy, welcoming successive electoral victories and support for the constitutional amendments sought by Erdogan. But this June, municipal elections across Turkey saw opposition party the CHP surged to victory in Istanbul and Ankara. Erdogan rival Imamoglu has been elected mayor in Istanbul. It's a significant result as it's the exact position from which Erdogan launched his bid to capture Turkish politics. So to get a better view on why Turkey has experienced this slide from democracy to authoritarianism and whether the municipal result means anything for the longevity of Erdogan's rule, I'm joined by Tezkan Gumas, who earlier this year was awarded his PhD, largely centering on Turkey's inability to consolidate a democratic political system. Thanks for joining me, Tez. Absolute pleasure, Tom. So just to kick off, where did your interest in Turkish politics begin? So my background is Turkish and I come from a highly politically engaged family. So that's that really fermented a lot of interest in politics from a very young age. And then when I went back to uni, just seemed like this natural course that I would follow academically and intellectually and end up doing a PhD on the role of political leaders and Turkey's inability to consolidate democracy. Can you introduce our audience to the legacy of Kemalism and the birth of the Turkish nation and how that plays a role in Turkish politics today? Turkey, it's, it's known fact that Turkey was born, modern day Turkish Republic was born from ashes of the Ottoman Empire and created by Mustafa Kemal Atatürk uh, pretty much after World War One, in 1923 uh, and the Republican elites around him so uh, and they devised a very top-down way of creating nation building and very staunchly secular secularization mission and modernizing mission and to pretty much break Turkey from its uh, Ottoman past and and I guess more religious past the way I what it was the character of an Ottoman rule. So it was very, the way it was done was, I guess, when we look at it uh, from this context, very authoritarian, top down. And I guess the remnants of that really continue to play out today in the multi party era where we have the Republican People's Party, so um, CHP, the Turkish acronym, is, was, was the founding party that Ataturk uh, created and ruled over the country for over two decades under single party rule. And it still continues on today as, as the main opposition party. Um, so I guess the legacy still continues and, um, and those identities 
and the philosophy of Kamalism still is very pre- prevalent in society and also in the multi-party uh, politics of Turkey as well. So Erdogan's ruling AKP party came to power through a democratic election in 2002. What was the Turkish political system like at that point in time? So I guess um, Erdogan, uh, the AKP, so Adalet ve Kalkınma Partisi, so Justice and Development Party, were created in 2001, so just over a year before the general elections of 2002. And the decade leading up to these elections, 2002, was a very dark period um, economically in Turkey, so the 90s, and also politically. Um, it, there was a lot of um, human, systematic human rights violations, corruptions, short-lived um, uh, coalition governments. And, and so it was a highly turbulent um, era. And what happened when this new party was created in 2002 by Erdogan and his uh, cadre of political Islamists was that they were these seen as very new and very fresh faces that offered a completely alternative to what had happened, the political elites and leaders that came before and the parties. So you can't say it's a phenomenon within the year of um, creating a party to be elected in an overwhelming majority with 34, uh, just over 34% of the um, majority vote and to attaining two thirds of the parliamentary assembly gave this very, uh, very new party complete control of the assembly at that period. So these are the factors that were really leading into, into, into Turkey. So that was, this party was seen as this, uh, this new sort of hope to carry Turkey out of this dark period throughout the 90s and early 2000s. So in 2017, we saw a constitutional vote that was won by 51% and gave Erdogan more presidential powers. And then again, this year, we've seen municipal elections across Turkey. My question is, what is the election like in Turkey today? How free and how fair? To take it back to 2016, when there was a failed coup in, on July 15th, um, 2016, we see the immediate um, call to uh, suspension of rule of law, of democracy, basically, and um, imposition of a state of emergency for two years. And what this did was de facto uh, give de facto powers over the state and, and, and political landscape to Erdogan, who was president. So he was able to, basically in the name of protecting democracy and protecting the state, was able to rule through decrees. So there was complete bypassing of, uh, of the parliament and, you know, those dec- democratic process to make laws and, uh, and, and legislation. So we see a pretty much, um, from this point in time, a very direct and immediate erosion or, or dismantling of democracy under the powers of a state, state of emergency and the powers that were given to Erdogan as president. So then we get to April 2017 when there's a constitutional referendum. So it is still held underneath the state of emergency, which really sits against um, being a free and fair election. At this point in time, we see 11 members of Turkey's third largest party, which is the Herde Pair, which is a Kurdish-focused uh, political party. Their co-leaders and 11, 10 to 11 other parliamentarians jailed within this, at this point in time under terrorist charges. So they're highly weakened and repressed throughout these conditions. At this point in time as well, Turkey's political landscape is pretty much dominated by Erdogan and his ruling party. So 90% of TV channels are under his influence or direct control. 95% of the newspaper um, circulation is uh, directly controlled uh, or monopolized by, by newspapers that are close to him and his networks. So if You've got no free and fair uh, uh, media landscape throughout this period. 
you have a highly repressive um, um, period and you have Turkey's third largest party, you know, I guess handicapped with, with a number of its parliamentarians and its um, two co-leaders in jail. So, you know, from the beginning, it's a very repressive and unfair uh, electoral process. And, you know, EU um, observers have come out and said, you know, this constitution was highly skewed and unfair, uh, skewed towards the favour of um, the yes vote, so towards Erdogan uh, and his, his campaign. And that the state, all state resources were pretty much used to, to fund his, uh, his election campaign. So it was, I guess, in that sense, uh, it was a highly unfair election, undemocratic um, when we look at those conditions itself. So from that point on, we see, you know, we, we know that um, elections have not been open and fair um, as what we would, uh, we would assume to be um, democratic. Students of global politics would be familiar with the modernisation theory, which claims that economic development precedes democratisation. It's well known that Throughout Erdogan's early period of rule, Turkey experienced quite substantial economic growth. So my question is, why did this strong economic growth under Erdogan instead allow him to establish a more authoritarian regime? Yeah, I guess um, this is Lipset's, goes back to Lipset's modernisation theory of democracy and looking at the role of socioeconomic indicators and the higher, I guess, the more well-to-do a, a society uh, the more likely democracy will come around and so forth. So there is, uh, Lipset found there's correlation, but there's also counter arguments to say, well, correlation doesn't, is not causation. And there's many country, many examples in the world that Turkey being one of them that, you know, sit against this modernization theory. Yeah, indeed, Turkey under Erdogan th between 2002, when the moment they came to power, throughout the 2000, to about 2010 or uh, mid 2000s, had a massive growth in economic um, growth in middle class, economic security, and so forth. So, but yet at the same time, um, we see Turkey take a, a trend towards an, uh, take an authoritarian turn pretty much from 2011 under Erdogan's, after Erdogan's third electoral victory. So what does this say? Um, maybe, I guess, this bucks or goes against uh, modernization theory, or maybe it just disproves it from, from the very beginning. It maybe shows that people are willing to vote for um, authoritarian leaders uh, if their social economic rights are protected, are growing. So maybe it says something about human psychology. That as long as their hip pocket is, is healthy, they're willing to, um, to vote in leaders uh, to, to vote in leaders who might be able to, who might even though take away their civil and political rights, but still pay them off or um, maybe be a payoff with, with giving them more economic benefits in the long run. And this is the same thing with China. A lot, a lot of people say that once China develops economically, then you know growth of um, middle class, then we'll start, uh, then we'll see more liberalisation politically. But we haven't seen that at all either. So, and there are there are arguments that 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 examples that sort of uh, uh, disprove the modernisation theory. But you know, there's a lot of theories out there, and, and it just depends on how you which how you frame them or which angle you approach democratisation. So. Who are Erdogan's supporters and why does he appeal to them? Erdogan's supporter base, uh, I guess, to make a very journalistic uh, comment, is that there are more of the conservative elements and pious elements in Turkish society. So what, is te what has been called Black Turks, 
and then you're opposite sitting opposite to them are white turks so more urbanized more secular minded elements within turkish society so Erdogan really appeals to what we call these black Turks because in Turkey's history that, you know, the military and the bureaucracy have always had uh, strong powers within the state and over politics. And conservative and religious elements throughout Turkey's political history have always been marginalized and have always suffered a number of uh, political party closures because they've always been seen to overstep or look to break uh, Turkey's secular, con- secular constitution. And, and this is seen a lot of the religious parties or the Islamist parties suffer at their hands. And at, at the same time, because the levers of the state, the courts, the bureaucracy have always been in the hands of the more secular minded um, actors. It, religiously minded um, people have always, has been, a lot of the times have seen themselves or felt themselves shunned from these um, critical positions. So when Erdogan and his party have come, came along, they sort of really appealed to, to this segment of voters. And, and once they got voted, voted in, we saw a lot more, um, we saw them benefit economically and politically. So once where they were marginalized for Turkey's uh, political history, multi-party history over 60 years, and even harping back to 19, early 1920s when Turkish Republic was created, it was the first time that the more conservative religious elements felt included and safe to be able to participate and, and voice uh, their concerns and have those concerns heard. And Erdogan really has appealed to that. And the thing is, what we call Black Turks constitute a majority in, in Turkish society. And the White Turks, I guess, secular-minded, have always been the minority when we look at the numbers. So hence, his, his, his rhetoric... His, uh, his character is very conservative and pious human being as well. So he really plays upon those characters to appeal to those voters and hence they love him for it. So this is why we constantly see his support base that very strong. I want to explore further this divide between the Black Turks and the White Turks. What are their opposing political perspectives? How different are these two communities from each other? And someone like Imam Oldu, who's just won the uh, municipal election in Istanbul. Is he someone that can potentially unite these people or is he someone that's just speaking to the white Turks? We need to take, I guess, a broader perspective in this journey um, in Turkey's political landscape and um, electoral appeal of, of leaders and, and political parties. So Erdogan um, started off in, between his, in his first term in 2002-2007 really um, not only appealing to, I guess, what we'd call the Black Turks, the more conservative elements um, in Turkey, but also to liberals and intellectuals who wanted a liberalization of the Turkish uh, political landscape. So to do away the military tutelage, to change things up, to broaden, uh, broaden politics, and to make it more inclusive, not be dominated by the secular elites and so forth. So 2002-2007, we see a very much uh, a strong democratizing period for Turkey in line we're taking steps to make EU and candidature status. But then from 2007 to 2010, we see a, a stagnation of these reforms. And then through from 2011, um, the, the, the third electoral victory of Erdogan, we see a much more authoritarian slide. So from majoritarian to authoritarian slide from that point on, really, much more overtly. And at this point, what we see is Erdogan's, um, I guess, divisive language and narrative uh, I guess dividing Tur- Turks between these into very divisive uh, and which 
then ends up polarizing um, his voter base and non-voter base against one another, really continue to play out much more um, extremely and which continues to exist today. Where, uh, where Imam Allah comes into play is Imam Allah's language has been much completely opposite of this populist rhetoric of where Erdogan has been basically saying that it's all it's us versus them type of uh, type of narrative that has been very divisive in Turkish uh, society and it's pretty much about Turkish politics is basically now about pro-Erdogan or anti-Erdogan really and Imam Allah's strategy and his party strategy which is the uh, Republican People's Party JHP has gone the opposite way and trying to appeal to all segments of Turkish politics so they haven't based their campaign on identity politics so of what what has been happening currently in, in, in Turkish political climate they've come, completely done away with that and Imam Allah and his surname funny enough it means the son of Imam so he comes from a very uh, he comes from a seems to come from, comes from a conservative background or pious background I won't say conservative pious background his family is from the Black Sea region, which Erdogan's family is from, from as well. And Black Sea region is conservative uh, and nationalistic as well. So he's got those credentials. He appeals to those voters. And his language and it has been very inclusive. And it's based what's and the manifesto that JFP, his party released for his municipal elections, was the politics of love. So basically, um, this, this handbook on how they were going to do politics in the municipal elections. Uh, as a prescription to to all their candidates, and if they win, and this is what the the, the ideas or philosophy that they're going to base their, um, uh, I, I guess, running of, of the local municipality. So they actually had this handbook called the Politics of Love, or, or something very similar. So it was completely opposite to the campaign that AKP and Erdogan ran for these municipal elections, and it actually worked in in Imam Oğlu's benefit and in Ankara too, with the JPS and candidate one as well which has always been uh, held by the AKP for, for, for a very, very long time, so both yeah. major cities. Was Imam Oldi's success in Istanbul a vote for his policies or simply a vote against Erdogan? It was a mixture of both because Turkey's in the last couple of years have been, has been going through an economic um, slump. So inflation's going up, the lira has been constantly dropping for the last two years, and there's many factors for this reason and one being the bad economic policies of Erdogan's government. And that's, I guess, we've got that one element. So people are obviously suffering on the ground economically. And then also Imam Oğuz's appeal and his policies were very appealing. And, and like I said, his language of inclusiveness. And, and you have to understand, leading up to Turkey has been on a very, like I said, it's very, very polarized and people have been very tense. So divide into these, um, political camps, opposing political camps. So the, so all this, uh, you know, created this this atmosphere which allowed Imam Oğuz to come through and be successful in his victories because A, policy-wise, it was very, very appealing. His language was very appealing. And also you've got at the same time a, a massive economic downturn in Turkey happening as well. So, you know, it was a mixture of it, a lot of things. So we saw the failure of the Gezi Park protests to manifest any real political change in 2013. It's been said that that was potentially due to the fact that the protesters weren't able to uh, formulate a coherent platform. Uh, has it been? Why has it been difficult for Erdogan's opponents to form a coherent challenge? And does Imam Oğlu's success in Istanbul potentially suggest that 
that coherent platform may have finally arrived? I think Gezi Park protests were um, spontaneous um, protests that ended up being about protecting this only green um, space within the heart of Istanbul. And then when the strong arm or the repressive uh, response by the the police force and the government uh, ended up being, seeing a reaction that uh, that inclu- became a, a very much a protest against the government and their character rule leading up to that point. The thing was, it was a bit cross-section. You had a lot of secularists, you had a lot of um, uh, Kurdish activists, liberals and so forth. And you even had pious people who wanted a, a change in character of, of the, uh, the way that, uh, policy was made by the government. So it was a response and, and a cry for change in that response, in that um, stance. What happened was none of the political parties were able to or were willing to officially adopt Gezi Park's um, uh, aims and attitudes and and to be able to really insert them into the political um, or representative arena, so the assembly and so forth. So after a while, being a civil societal movement, being cross-sectional and having a multitude of different identities, it sort of fell apart because... Um, there was no common identity. The only commonality between them was that um, it was against Erdogan and everyone had their own sort of differing gripes. And so there was no cohesion, strong cohesion um, outside of that fact. So that sort of fell apart once once the former political parties didn't really engage with them or adopt, or adopt the Gezi protest um, uh, or take leadership of, of Gezi protests. So it petered out. Why Turkey's political um, opposition haven't been able to uh, uh, ally themselves again, uh, uh, create a strong relationship and bond uh, against Erdogan? That has a lot to do with a couple of factors or a few factors. One is that they um, they represent different identities in Turkey. So JHP, the main opposition party, uh, is you know uh, is comes from a very secular Kemalist background, and HDP, um, the Kurdish Focus Rights Party, comes from a Kurdish focused, so ethnically, you know, they're, they're representative of the Kurdish vote. And then you have more, I guess, centre-right political parties and so forth. So identity, identity plays a massive um, issue and political ideology plays a massive issue in this sense. Um, the inability of these parties to, to formally join, unite, and, and, and sort of uh, pose a, a solid block against Erdogan. What we saw in these municipal elections is this actually really happening. So you have a new a centre-right party, um, E-Party is a good party ran by Meral Akshanam, and JFP align, align themselves or formally come to an alliance um, to offer joint candidates. So Imamola was one of their joint candidates um, in Istanbul. Um, Mansur was the candidate in Ankara and so forth. So one, the key municipal uh, municipalities, um, the EU party, so Good Party and JP, People's Republican Party, came to form an alliance um, to offer joint candidates. At the same time, what we see is the Kurdish Focus Party of HDP um, informally uh, support uh, these other two parties by not putting up candidates in the major cities as well. So even though they didn't come out and say that we are joining a formal alliance with these two parties, um, they refused to put up candidates in, in these major municipalities like Istanbul, like Ankara, I guess in a, in a strategy to allow them to, to attract um, 
their votes as well to, to, to be able to, to win over the mm. AKPs or Erdogan's party's candidates. So we're seeing it very, very slowly now. Um, but how far, how united, how strong of a block they're going to offer is one thing. But also, so to take it back, this we were seeing this in the last um, elections, presidential and parliamentary elections, where we saw, again, the JFP, the good party, Saadet party saw that another uh, a, a religious party, political Islamist party, formerly um, ally in, in these in these in these previous elections, so the general election. So we have seen this happening more than what we we haven't seen this happen before in Turkish political history before. So I think Erdogan's hegemony uh, is forcing political parties, opposition parties, to rethink their strategy of being so divided amongst themselves. So looking at the Turkish constituency, there's the substantial minority in the Kurds. And uh, what I want to know is how did that constituency affect the, the voting patterns in the municipal elections? I think this, this obviously, had their pairs of the um, political, Kurdish folks' political party um, really had a major play in this. Like I said in the previous answer, that um, they, ref- they didn't put up um, candidates in the major cities, um, so like Istanbul and Ankara. And what they also did was came out and supported Imamoğlu's um, candidature. And these statements were also heard with, from Selahattin Demirtas, which is one of their co-leaders who's in jail at this point in time. During this, uh, the re-election, so the rerun of the uh, Istanbul municipal election, he actually came and said that you know, he, he supports uh, words that were in support of Imamoğlu's candidature, so to elect him. So a lot of people thought that... Um, the Kurdish vote in Istanbul in these major cities and had their pairs um, these uh, favorable comments towards him saw a massive swing of the Kurdish vote to, to Imamol himself, so which was able to get him over the line uh, against the AKP's candidates. So in that sense, yeah, I mean the had their pair and the Kurdish vote is is as as been seen to play a massive role in especially in Imamol's vote. So Mustafa Kemal's um, Republican Party has a strong secular tradition. We've then seen the rise of the AKP and their more Islamist uh, orientation. I'm wondering whether this new challenge from Imam Olu represents the emergence of a new contest between secularism and Islamism in Turkish politics. So the, the idea of secularism versus Islam to, to understand Turkish political developments is, to, I think, to very, uh, you know, simplistic way to view Turkish politics um, throughout, to, throughout the country's history. I think there's much more at play than just simply between dichotomy between um, these, these two, two forces. I think, but leaving, leaving beside that, besides the fact, is that we, the AKP, so Erdogan's party, comes from a t- tradition of political Islam, or Milli Gurish. Uh, so it's, you know, it, and it doesn't really hide the fact that he's a conservative uh, and religious party it hasn't it never did uh, from the very beginning. They sort of uh, characterized themselves as Muslim Democrats or conservative Democrats, so forth. But the 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 people that established that party come from a, a long line of political Islamist party parties. But you know, won't get into that. And JFP, so Imamoğlu's party, um, Republican People's Party, come from a very much strong secular um, tradition, harping back to the creation of. The, um, of, of the country itself being the, uh, the first political party and, 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 and also running the country under, during single party rule. But what we see in, in these, in um, pretty much 
beginning from the presidential parliamentary elections and with Imamol culminating in Imamol, especially if we look at him as the focus point, is this JFK's um, political strategy or electoral strategy is not based on identity politics or secularism or Islamism and so forth. And hence why um, they, were able, they went for the candidate like Imamola, who was pious. Uh, no, I guess he, he's, he's a pious character that comes from the Black Sea. So he's not your traditional um, JFK candidate that we see as what is very secular, highly urbanised, very much a white Turk, embedding the, the, the culture of, white, um, of the white Turk. Um, so his, his image appeals to a cross-section of Turks. So I think what we see is a change in strategy of, of, the, of the Republican People's Party into put up a candidate who is much more inclusive and has a broader appeal. So which were that, I guess, traditionally they went for more secular or, uh, represent, representatives or candidates and much more from the, I guess, secular elites as well. So whereas he sort of, his candidature is really bucked that trend. I mean, when he got uh, elected, uh, in, in his office, you know, he called an imam to, to, to say a few prayers to bless his office, which would have been unheard of for any JFP um, uh, politician or, or man to, to have done, you know, mm. in, in recent history. So it shows you how the strategy, um, because JFP knows that they can't compete with AKP and identity politics. They'll always lose out. They need to offer something that is much more inclusive and appeals to broader segments of Turkish society. And they've been, you know, since they've been successful in Mamola, in particular, if we're to, to focus on him as, a, as, a, as, a, as an example. The loss uh, of Istanbul, the loss of Ankara at the recent municipal elections, what does this spell for Erdogan going into the future? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people have said, you know, this is, uh, you know, hope for democracy and so forth. Uh, I think to a certain sense, yes, it is. Uh, there's no denying that Turkey is now um, under an authoritarian system, especially after the constitutional um, change from a parliamentary um, democracy to a presidential system in 2017, which gives Erdogan vast amounts of unchecked powers. And pretty much you can bypass um, the representative assembly. So these, the opposition's ma massive gains in the elections, uh, in the municipal elections, where they, I guess, when we look at uh, the two major cities being the capital, Ankara, and Istanbul being the economic hub of Turkey, uh, as a lot as created this hope that you know to, uh, this could be the savior of Turkish democracy. But we need to understand that we need to be realistic that these are only municipal elections, victories, and that Erdogan still constitutionally holds the levers of the state. And nothing has changed that in, in the bigger scheme of things. So the, the, the thinking is that Erdogan has learnt from this mistake and there are um, certain thinkers and journalists think that there will be a round of um, legislative changes that are going to increase his power even more and diminish. And what's happened is there have also been um, certain laws that have been passed that has diminished or curtailed these uh, the mayor's powers to be able to do things. Uh, so... You know, immediate steps have been taken to curtail the power of these opposition mayors, but at the same time, and there is uh, thinking that there's going to be more legislative changes to increase Erdogan's power and to be able to, to curtail the opposition's power. So, you know, really nothing's changed in that sense. So this is, but what's happened is galvanizes the opposition support base, giving it much more hope. But at the same time, we're also seeing that former AKP politicians are going to establish their own parties in opposition to Erdogan. So former 
colleagues of his and 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 at least from the party itself um like ali babajan and also former president abdullah gul and also former prime minister ahmed Dabutol are going to apps rumored to be creating their own parties and going to be establishing them anytime soon formally um in opposition to erdogan himself so erdogan at this point in time is you know bit more of it i guess is is living more of a i guess he's seeing much more pressure to his um against his rule and challenge against his rule than what he's um he's experienced before but he still holds the power over within the state and over the political landscape too so erdogan's supporters effectively voted away the turkish democracy over the past decade can it be said now that they can vote it back is there any prospect of a peaceful transition of power in turkey <laughs> I wrote an article for the conversation a couple of years ago called mm. Democide. I read it. So Democide is basically um, society using this democratic right to uh, to end democracy. And, and I guess when we look at the constitutional amendments to 2017, where Turkey transitioned to a, uh, for, to a presidential system and giving Erdogan vast amount of powers, unchecked powers, that Turkish, um, that 51% of Turks, so the slight majority really voted in favor to end democracy itself and we see this in in the weimar republic in germany and so forth so you know the irony is that use your democratic um, right to end democracy um going forward can we see a reversal of that definitely we can see a reversal of that because even though systematically system-wise if we're to look at it turkey is somewhat some type of sub um subtype of authoritarian system that a lot of um, authors and and and, and political scientists have categorized it as. But, you know, at the same time, if there is a level of elections that still exist, whether they're free, how free and fair they are is, is, is up for contestation, but yet those elections still exist. So there is still contains remains hope that if somehow there's a massive upsurge of, of support for opposition parties, then we might see a, a return to some sort of uh, democratic politics and this is also uh, uh, I guess I'm I sort of I'm saying this as well is that the opposition parties have consistently said that if they get voted in they will change the constitution and revert it back to a parliamentary system so they're constantly um, talking about you know going back to an old uh, parliamentary system but a much better parliamentary system than what was what was before so I guess we can see that if they were to get uh, voted in, that we can still see a reversal in, in this, uh, maybe a system change back to, to what it was. So there's definitely hope. So I guess um, in that sense, um, but it's all really got to do with um, elections and, 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 you know, and the outcomes of that too, yeah. Well, thanks for joining me today, Tez.